Today on Talking with No Bro, we're chatting with Bob Statman. Bob is former editor of Sedalia Democrat, still a contributing columnist at the Democrat, and the communication director for Sedalia 200. How are you doing today, Bob? Doing great. Uh, good to see you, Dustin. Good to see you. Hey, Bob, can you give us a little, little bit about your background? Sure. Um, I was, I have been a professional journalist for about 30 years. Published my first newspaper when I was in third grade. Um, have believed in the power of storytelling my entire life. I'm from Northwest Indiana, the Chicago media market basically. Went to school, a little liberal arts college in central Indiana, got a journalism degree. Worked at a couple of community papers. Have worked at newspapers in Indiana, Illinois, Arizona and uh, now Missouri. In 2013, the Sedalia School District created the position of communications director and I applied for the job and received it. And this is where I've been since tax day uh, 2013, helping tell the story of Sedalia School District 200, our excellent staff, our students, um, just keeping people as connected as possible to all the important stuff that happens within the district. Um, along the way, I'm, I'm, I'm still a columnist for the Democrat. I write a weekly column. In the past, it was kind of a general uh, information, general point of view column. But uh, last year, I made a switch, and it's now focused on slice of life, where I, I look at one aspect of a person's life and uh, why that piece of their life is, is important to them. So uh, there's a journalist for CBS News named Steve Hartman. And he did a series of, a, a wonderful series called Everybody Has a Story. And um, it's one of the things I use to help teach uh, high school journalism students about journalism and, and storytelling. And that was kind of my inspiration is just finding, you know, talking to everyday people about what their story is, because that's what connects us is, is our stories and our connection, our connection points based on, on the things that are important in our lives. Yeah. I I'd have to agree with you. So Bob, let me ask you about uh, your 30 years in journalism. Have you seen it kind of take a different direction, kind of uh, like leading with misinformation or maybe like the clickbait theory? I mean, but how do you feel about that? Have you, have you noticed that? I, I have. Um, you know, there was a time when you, there were television stations, radio stations, um, newspapers, magazines, and there were standards that you had to meet in order to work at those institutions to publish news, to publish information. And through technology, now everyone is their own printing press. We all have platforms through social media, through websites, blogs. Everyone has a platform to push out a message. That doesn't mean that they are qualified, that they have ethics, that they have scruples, and that they're being open with their motivation. I teach an introduction to journalism class at Smith Cotton High School, and the first three weeks we spend on media literacy and understanding how messages are created and understanding that when you accept a message, when you read a message or, or hear a message, you have to consider what is the motivation of the person who created that message? Because they want you to do something with that information. They want you to buy something. They want you to believe something. They want you to vote for something. 
they have a motivation and you have to figure out what that is. You have to know what that is. What we have seen is a proliferation of media sources that are highly motivated to get you to believe something or vote for something without being open about their motivations. And everybody likes to have their point of view validated, but that's a dangerous platform to be on. So if you're only accepting information that validates your preconceived notion of the world, you're not learning and you're being misled. Um, I tell my students, anytime you wanna know where the truth is, look at three different versions of a story. And where those intersect, that's where the truth is. And everything else is suspect. So, you know, if when, when you see something online or, or pushed out somewhere, something someone shares with you, and oh, you know, this has been shut down by all these big time media outlets, and only I have the truth. No, you don't. I'll be blunt. No, you don't. No one person holds the truth on anything. And anyone who tells you that is lying to you. So that's one of the biggest problems that we have is that people are willing to accept something just because, you know, take a look at our current circumstance, uh, coronavirus. Sure, it's, there are a lot of aspects of it that people don't like, but just because somebody has come up with some theory that you want to believe doesn't mean that you should believe it. And there are, there are fact-checking outlets out there, but the, the problem that we have now is, you know, like things like Snopes. Snopes is valid, but there are people who say that Snopes has a liberal bias. Well, it only has a liberal bias if it's not endorsing your preconceived notion of the world. So I, I just wish people would be a little bit more careful with what they share. Uh, I wish that they would spend a little bit more time seeking out other sources for information and comparing them. Does it put a lot more work on the back end for, for the consumer? It does. And that's the really unfortunate thing is because we've allowed these big media companies to take over everything and they're all motivated to get you to think and believe a certain way. Sure. I can see where it would benefit them to shape us. But yeah, as a consumer, we do need to take time take a step back and and read these messages search for their intentions kind of what you mentioned earlier i i could see the value in that and and it, i'm not talking that it's all coming from one political side both sides do it but as consumers it, we unfortunately are going to have to be we're going to have to seek out better sources for information multiple sources for information and, and compare them if you really want to know what's real very good Seeking additional sources has great value. Can you talk a little bit about the value of local journalism? Absolutely. You know, um, there are hundreds of thousands of places you can go to learn about stuff that Congress is voting on or um, what's going on internationally. But there's only a handful of places where you can go to find out what's happening at your city hall or with your school board or with your water board. That's the value of local journalism and the professionals who work hard to create that content, to, to cover those important stories. And when you really think about it, while something happening in Belgium or 
Cambodia may be interesting to you and you may have some kind of a vested interest in learning about that for any number of reasons, what's really gonna affect you on a day-to-day -day basis is what's happening with local businesses, local people, local institutions, and that can only be covered by local journalists. There's a real chicken and egg issue going on with local media. There are people who complain, oh, the local media sources don't have very much content, so I'm not gonna pay for it. Well, if you can't pay reporters, quality reporters, to report and write those stories, then you're not going to have that content to sell. People need to have a good faith investment on the front end with local media sources. Those, those people who chase down those stories deserve to be paid. And because the internet broke the advertising model, I mean, think about what the classified ads looked like in a newspaper just 10 years ago, 15 years ago. There were six to eight pages of classified ads with everything from yard sales to job listings, autos for sale, dogging, lost dogs and cats, everything. I looked at the Democrat this week and there was one page of classified advertising. That's a huge loss for them from, from an operating standpoint because uh, of the internet and, and other online uh, options. Businesses can advertise online. They can direct mail. You can, you can sign up for, if a pizza place wants to reach out to you, they're going to create a, a texting service where once a week they're going to, or twice a week, they're going to text you an offer. They don't need to buy advertising. They, they pay for that service to directly contact you. So the, the model for print, especially print, it will print and online journalism is, is a real challenge. So when a paywall goes up, it's because they wanna pay the people who are creating that valuable content that tells you what's going on in your community, that, that explains to you why the city council voted the way it did, that tells you what's that business that's going in, that will explain to you why has construction been delayed on that project that I'm so looking forward to opening. The people who do that, they deserve to make a decent wage and have some benefits and, and because their job is as valuable as anybody else's. So every time I see a, a link shared someplace and, and someone asking, oh, well, will somebody who has paid for that screenshot it and share it with me? No, if that content is valuable enough for you to wanna read, then it should be valuable enough for you to pay for. And, and when you pay for it, you support local journalism so that more of that content can be provided to you. The investment will pay off in quality information that's gonna improve the quality of your life and your connection with your community. It, it's just, it's, it's vital for people to support local journalism, whether it's our local radio stations, uh, newspapers, whatever. Um, if, if, you wanna, if you wanna know what's going on in your community, you have to have a, a solid local journalism base. And, and you know, we've got, you know, yes, I'm, I'm biased in, in that I used to be the editor of the Democrat and I, I know the people who work there. I know how hard they work. I know how challenging it is. You know, when I started at the Democrat in January of 2009, there were 17 people in the newsroom. There's six. There's six currently. Jeez. You mentioned earlier uh, this situation that we're experiencing and the, the, the nation world, worldwide we're going through. Uh, has it 
obviously it's affected your job where uh, the, the students are at home, but are you still in and out of the office day to day or working from home or how has that affected you? It's been a combination. Um, I do come into the office. I'm not working a full day um, at, at the Sedate 200 Central Office. Uh, I do some work from home. As part of the uh, Central Office team, we are, as a district, we're providing meals for students. Our food service staff create, makes meals, uh, bag meals that have breakfast and lunch in them. And uh, Monday through Friday, our bus routes are delivering we're delivering the meals to students on the bus route. So students come out to where the bus would normally pick them up on the two hour delayed start schedule. And I'm on one of two teams out of Sedalia Middle School. We rotate every other week to load the buses up. So we're, we're there with gloves and masks and the meals are all bagged and ready to go. We load the buses up and uh, our staff is volunteering to hand them out. It's an opportunity for our staff to be able to um, maintain connections with students. The kids like to see their teachers come and, and you know drop the meals off for them. We're serving, um, then on, on Fridays, Heartland, uh, a local group that does uh, some, they, they have run the summer meal, summer feeding program in the past, they do weekend meals. So on Fridays, the district provides a breakfast and lunch for Friday and Heartland provides um, those meals for Saturday and Sunday. So we hand out a bunch of food on Fridays. So when you combine those two, we're, we're serving about 20,000 meals a week to local students. Um, wow. And uh, it's, it's gone over well. The kids get, you know, a, a meals that are nutritious. You know, we're following FDA uh, guidelines or Department of Ag guidelines, I should say, just like uh, school lunches do. So the kids are getting nutritious stuff and we bring it out to them every day. And it's, it's just something that at the very start of this, we knew um, our district has uh, around 60% uh, free and reduced price meal eligibility. So we knew that there were kids out there who needed nutrition. They, you know, we can't expect, you can't expect the car to go without gas. We can't expect kids to perform well and think and study if, if, their, tum if their stomach is growling. So we knew that we had to provide those meals for them and that, especially as you know, the issues were coming up with the economy that families were gonna have difficulty um, with groceries. So it's, it's, it's been a real help for people. We believe we've gotten some real positive feedback. Um, uh, one day, uh, we wanted to make certain that our, our food service ladies knew how appreciated their work was. And um, in May, the first uh, Friday in May is School Lunch Hero Day. So a couple of days before that, uh, when we dropped off meals, we gave out uh, blank thank you cards and asked the students, asked the kids to just write a note to the lunch ladies about how much they appreciated the meals. We got probably about 60 to 70% of those cards back the next day. It was really nice to see the looks on their faces. Uh, they, they teared up seeing the thank you notes from, uh, from those students. So as part of the, the district central office team, it, 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 it's nice to know that the work of our frontline folks is appreciated by the people who are benefiting from it. Sure, yeah, that's incredible. So you said you were working half days on and off. I'm sure your schedule fluctuates, but uh, 
with the increased time at home, some people have kind of picked up some, some new skills or tried out some stuff or finally had time to plant the garden. Have you found yourself doing anything kind of unique? Not me, not really. Um, I'm reading a little bit more. Um, usually my reading is confined to current events. So, you know, I've, I've picked up a couple of books that I've bought over the past few years and never gotten around to. So I'm doing a little bit of reading. A lot of what I'm doing is, you know, I'm having a fair number of conversations with our um, administrative team about what's next, trying to figure out um, what we're going to have to do to reopen schools in the fall. Uh, right now, it, it, there are an awful lot of unanswered questions concerning that. We're thinking about different options. So we want, we just want to be prepared when we finally get a green light on, or, or finally get some answers on some things. Um, I've also been trying to promote the ways that our teachers have been reaching out to students. So uh, on the district Facebook page, we've uh, spent a fair amount of time showing how our teachers are connecting uh, through Zoom or through Google Classroom, um, different ways that uh, they have been connecting with students and trying to foster a, a continuation of learning. Um, it's one of the reasons that the state, you know, DESE puts such a, uh, an influence on attendance. We know that students retain information better when they attend school regularly, when they are using those critical thinking skills on a regular basis. They retain the information. So that's been one of the challenges through all of this is today, one of the things I, I do is I send out the alternative methods of instruction, which is the distance learning, the, the lessons that we email out to parents and put on our website so that all students, K through eight, can continue just thinking and learning and keeping their skills sharp for until we get back to school. At the high school level, all the students have Chromebooks, so their, their lessons have continued because they have access. We have Chromebooks, and then um, before we went on break, we made certain that any student who didn't have internet access could obtain, you know, they, they had to come and ask for one, but they could obtain a hotspot so that they could have internet access at home. So um, that's a lot of what I've been trying to help with as well, is questions from parents about the distance learning. If I can answer it, I do. If not, I, you know, flip over to our curriculum directors or teachers to try to make certain that we're meeting the needs of those parents. I had interviewed Josh Heimsoff, and he talked about the computers at home and uh, how that program was going, or how well it was going. And with that in place, like it, it may help out with snow days in the future. That, that's, that's definitely a possibility. Um, as, as distance learning expands, we're looking at expanding our one-to-one -one program to the junior high. Uh, it's an active conversation right now with the administration and our, our school board. So um, it's entirely likely that within the next couple of years, we'll extend Chromebook use into the junior high and those students will all get a Chromebook. And that allows for that distance learning. Now, we will never tell you that that's 100% you know, what we're gonna go to because we understand the value of ha having students in class, having one-to-one -one conversations with instructors. We've heard from a lot of our students that the um, online learning is a challenge for them, that they just learn better from being with a teacher. And, and part of that is what they're accustomed to. 
Um, and distance learning is a new thing for them. And it's something that we all have to adjust to, but we also recognize the value of personal connection. You know, um, we, we all benefit from that. And it's something that we're all missing through this time. So, but yeah, uh, as Mr. Heimsoff pointed out, you know, yes, the, um, the Chromebooks and the, and the one-to-one uh, program, it is working, it's working well. We're finding, trying to find ways to make it something better for students and, and more useful for teachers. But um, we fully expect that we're gonna have to expand that because who knows what things are gonna look like as we move into the fall. Sure, definitely an uncertain area. All right, so with the, with the shift of learning, the transition for learning, that brings me to your, your column that you write. It kind of shifted and transitioned from a, a general column to this now slice of life. Can you tell us a little more about that? Sure. Um, it was uh, about a year or so ago. Uh, yeah, it was about a year ago. My job for the district consumes an awful lot of my time. And I was realizing that I, I wasn't having an, an adequate amount of time to conduct interviews because as a columnist, I'm not somebody who can just look at some current issue and then write 700 words off the top of my head about what I think. So I worked for an editor in Arizona named Jim Ripley, and um, he used to call those columns navel gazing. So basically, you're bending over and you're staring at yourself. And who cares about that? So um, I never wanted to be a navel gazer as a columnist. So I always worked to find a local angle on an issue and, and talk with somebody locally. So if, if a mental health issue was in uh, the news that week, I would seek out somebody at Burl to talk to about a local perspective on that issue. I was running out of time to be able to conduct those interviews. So, and, and, and to respond quickly like that. So I thought about, you know, I, I go back to Steve Hartman and how inspired I am by what he did. You know, um, you can go and find some of his pieces on YouTube and, and they're fantastic. Uh, for a while there, what he'd do is um, the person he interviewed that for that week at the end of the, the piece, they'd put up a, a map of the United States and hand the person a dart and they'd throw the dart over their shoulder and wherever it landed, he had to go to that county, open up a phone book with his eyes closed, point and whoever he answered the phone at that phone book at that phone number. He had to do a story about them. Wow. <laughs> and it, it was just proof that everybody has a story. And there's a, there's just a brilliant one of him talking with a five-year-old and the importance of this little boy every week going to the flower shop and buying a balloon for his grandma. Well, his grandma had passed away the previous year. So what does he do with a balloon for grandma? Well, he's got to go give it to her. So his mom would drive him to the highest point in their county and he would let it go so that she could catch it in heaven. And wow. it's just a beautiful story. And, and when a five-year-old answers the phone, you think, how am I gonna get something out of this? It proved to me that everyone has a decent story to tell. So I started poking around um, with the idea and my first piece was on Michael Desmond, who um, used to be a part-time writer for me at, at the Democrat and he's a, a teacher in the district. But Michael spends his summers working on archaeological digs. Whoa. And his passion for it is just incredible. And, you know, I, I, I talked with um, Mary Jo Anibus, who has done so much work for the Scott Joplin Foundation. 
and, and just people like that who are, are members of our community and there's something that drives them. There's something that's really important about them. It's, it's a, it is a slice of their life. It's an important piece of their life. So it's been really fun to share those stories. And um, I've gotten some positive feedback on that. People just getting to know their neighbors, getting to know a little bit about other people. In the past few weeks, my focus has been on high school seniors. Sure. I'm talking to one senior at every Pettis County high school about the unconventional end to this school year and how it's affected them. Because of course it's affected all the students, but for example, um, Allison Fox uh, from Greenridge, I, I talked to her a couple weeks ago. She and her friends had just finished their final practice before games were supposed to start. And they were told, uh, we might not be coming back. And then their whole season was canceled. Well, these girls had played softball together for years and they had targeted this senior year. They knew that this was going to be the year that they probably were going to win their conference. They were going to have a fantastic season. And it evaporated before they even had a chance to get in. So it, it is, you know, this has been a different circumstance for, for these seniors. But I've also had a chance to talk to, you know, like Cody Damlo at, at Sacred Heart. Um, this is a kid who is just so driven and, and has such a, a, a laser focus on what he wants to do with his life. You know, his father is a firefighter. And so Cody's going to go and, and go to school and he's going to become an artisan investigator. It, it's great to have these conversations where these kids talk about what they've missed, why it means something to them, and how they're pushing forward to do the next thing anyways. Another thing that's come through really strong is, um, it's been really nice, uh, a couple of students who really hit hard on it were um, Sarah Bradbury from Smith Cotton and uh, Gage Crane from Smithton. How much these students miss their teachers? how much they miss the structure of the school day. And so when you hear younger people, students complaining about school, it's just, it, it's kind of like complaining about school lunch. Um, it's the easy thing to do. That doesn't mean that school lunch isn't good. It doesn't mean that they don't eat it. They do, they enjoy it. But complaining about it is kind of part of the culture of being in school. And complaining about school is, is one of those things. But this time has really shown students and their parents how much the structure of the school day is meaningful to kids, how, how much they get out of that, and then how much they miss the connection, the, the real human connection uh, with their teachers. And it, it just really shows the value beyond the academics of education and teaching and how it, in tune um, those educators are with students and, and all of their needs. Yeah, that's incredible. I wouldn't have thought of the value of just the interpersonal connection versus the, you know, the, the learning itself. I mean, the, not just socializing, but connecting on that level and the value of that. That's, that's great. Well, on that note of alternate perspectives, your art is writing but with being a writer you obviously have to take in so much else and then turn it into words what, are, what other arts do you find influencing through the years I've, I've i've always tended to be friends with artists and and i define artists differently than a lot of other people do maybe because um i'll be honest i think a good hairdresser is an artist i think they perform art every day but uh, I, I think that 
it's so important for you to fill your home with original art, not prints from Target or Walmart. You know, make the investment into original art. I am pleased that my home includes a couple of Dustin originals. Um, <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> one that I commissioned even. But my, my wife, Melanie, and I, um, two of our best friends in the world, um, Keith Grace and Sherry Grace are artists. Um, you can look up keithgrace.com. Keith does some incredible work with multimedia. And we met when we worked at a newspaper in Rockford, Illinois together. He has uh, a number of pieces where he uses print text and then paints over it. And um, they're just fabulous pieces. And we've got a few of Keith's piece in our pieces in our home. Sherry does uh, stained glass that's gorgeous. When I was working in Marion, Indiana, I became friends. The, the guy who cut my hair, Scotty Jones, is now a fiber artist. And um, Earthy Fiber Arts, U-R-T-H-Y, Fiber Arts. You can look for him on Facebook. He takes like old 50s era advertising illustrations and turns them into handbags and wallets. And it's just so cool and unique. I got to know Barbara Cooney. Um, my early days at the Democrat, I got to know Barbara and what she was doing with Camp Blue Sky. And, you know, through all of this, that's one of the saddest things for me is, is that Camp Blue Sky is not going to be the same Camp Blue Sky experience for kids, because it's such a great way to introduce kids to so many different ways to express themselves in different tiers of art. So Barbara Cooney was a, a big influence on me from, from the get-go when I came to Sedalia. And I know that she's been, she was such a valuable person to the Sedalia arts community. And I just want to make certain that people never forget how valuable Barbara Cooney and, and her influence on Sedalia's arts community is. So, you know, anybody who's, who's kind of thinking about what they should be doing or what, one, buy, lo, buy art from local artists. There's beautiful stuff out there. Just check out what Nobro is doing and, and, and the, the members of the collective there. We mentioned uh, Josh Heimsoth earlier. Man, he makes some of the coolest stuff. It's such, the pottery he makes is so cool. It's, oh, it's great. And, and I just love seeing the different kind of creation from all these people. You don't have to go to Kansas City. You don't have to go to Chicago. There is great art being created here. And to find it, all you have to do is show up. It's really cool. It's really easy. Just show up. And that doesn't mean that every time you, you've got to buy something every time you go. If it's not in your, in your means, then don't do that. But the more you expose yourself to different kinds of art and, and the more you support local artists, the healthier your, your local community is going to be. You're helping your neighbors. And you're adding some really cool stuff to your home to make it you. There is a local sense of pride when you have a piece of art that you've related to, like it means something to you personally and you display it in your home and then you've also supported the community. It's really great. All right, Bob. If anyone wanted to get a hold of you, contact you with questions about journalism or any of the many topics we've talked about today, how would they do so? What's the best way? Uh, best way is probably by email, and my email address is bob.satnan at gmail.com. 
S like Sam, A, T like Tam, Tom, N like Nancy, A, N like Nancy. I always tell people, don't forget that first N. Yeah. All right, Bob, I want to thank you for your time today. I've enjoyed it. I think we've all taken some great things away from this, or will. Dustin, thanks so, so much for making time for me. I really appreciate it. And, and thanks for doing these, uh, these podcasts. It's great to get to hear from local artists and, and local people in our community. It, it creates those great connections that we all need. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. All right, bye. Thank you for listening. You can stay up to date with No Bro Art Events by following us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Thanks again.